Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, Champagne Sharks, episode 76. And we have with us a guest today. It's been a while since we've had a guest, and it's totally been my fault because I've been lazy on the coordinating front. And I decided that we should really get back to having guests because left to our own devices, we get kind of uh, repetitive. So uh, we've had reader questions, and I've been trying to make my way through the reader questions. But one thing that I did not want to do is act like a know-it-all. Because I know some people do that. They don't like to say when they don't know something. They want to pretend like they know everything and kind of fake it and rush out and read Wikipedia articles and then come back like an authority. And I try not to do that. If I don't know something, I don't know it. And I'd rather defer to a guest when possible who is an expert in those things. And today is one of those days. So starting off, introducing myself, but you guys already know, this is T. Trevor on Twitter. You can find me at Ricky Rawls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S. We have with us um, D. Mills. Hey, everybody. It's D. Mills. You can find me on Twitter at MDMills79. Glad to be in. And we have Mike. Hey, everybody. It's Mike. Find me on Twitter at BlackException1. Just a quick house cleaning. Um, donate to the show at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. $5 a month. You get double the episodes. Also, now there is a Discord server. It's a talk and voice chat that patrons can um subscribe to and when you join you get automatically sent instructions on how to join this discord server and it's uh it's pretty good so far it was a perk that a lot of people asked for so now that's included in the five dollar tier um also the twitter is uh at champagne sharks one word the reddit um uh, which we don't run but fans have created is champagnesharks.reddit.com and a lot of people have been enjoying that last two things if you can't donate the next best thing you can do is share the podcast with friends and strangers enemies loved ones hated ones whatever um just share it that always helps and leave a five-star review on itunes and something that a lot of people have said and i think a lot of people didn't realize um this but some people have said oh yeah you know it's too bad i don't have um itunes itunes i don't have an apple product or i would leave a review on um apple or itunes for you guys what people don't know is you can actually create an apple id um without having any apple products or anything you can just create it i'll put that link in the show notes so you can just create an apple id go over to the um, Champagne Sharks Apple page and leave the review. So don't worry about that. You don't have to have uh, an Apple product. I didn't realize that uh, not everyone knew that. Uh, so that's something that I'm going to let people know. And I think that's all the house cleaning. Did I forget anything, guys? No, I think you got it. Okay, yeah. Oh, also, champagnesharks at gmail.com if you want to uh, get questions answered similar to how a person is getting their question answered today, like basically like six months after they asked it, but uh, it'll, it'll get gotten to. 
Um, so today's guest is uh, a lot of you guys already know her because uh, she's pretty popular in these circles. Uh, Wendy Muse, please tell the people who you are for those who don't know and what your expertise is. Sure. Um, so for those of you who are looking for me on Twitter to stalk or harass, um, my, my Twitter handle is at Muse Wendy, and that's Wendy with an I, not a Y. Um, so just to give a little background, I'm a PhD candidate in history at NYU, and my research has to do with um, multiracial leftist networks that were going on during the Cold War between Brazil, Portugal, and Portuguese-speaking Africa. So I'm looking around, you know, 1950s to 1990s, actually. Um, but I've lived and worked in Brazil. I go to Brazil pretty much every year and have been since around 2003, 2004. Um, and a lot of my work ha- in the past, prior to starting my PhD, had to do with um, sort of, you know, the involvement of Black women in particular in Brazil and social movements um, and some of their presence in the media as well. Um, and I've also worked on some things that have to do with uh, post-abolition. So, you know, at the end of slavery, what Black people were doing in Brazil. So I've kind of touched on a lot of different subjects in Brazil. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm up to. Now, um, pardon me if you said this and I, and I missed it, but um, you didn't mention your ethnic background in that description, did you? Like as far as your uh, country of origin? Correct. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mention that. So I guess I should, I should okay. mention that to be clear for people. Um, I am a black person and um, I was born in Tennessee, actually. I'm originally from Memphis and moved to New York to go to college when I was 18. So um, the first time I went to Brazil was around that time. First time I went is, was when I was 19, I believe, 19 or 20. Um, so yeah, I'm, I bet I am an African-American uh, and we can, we can get into a bit more about my physical description too, because that will become relevant when we're talking about race in Brazil and the treatment that I deal with there as well. So, okay, great, great. And you are, so, um, just to make things even more explicit, you are a descendant of us slaves, right? Correct. Okay. I actually really like that. And I'll tell you why, because I feel like there's a lot of, um, African and Caribbean descended black people who are allowed to weigh in as authorities on um, African-American culture. So I think it's very um, interesting and good to have the reverse happen, you know, Mm -hmm. to have a U.S. descendant, a descendant of U.S. slaves being academic to speak on the diaspora outside of, um, uh, America, because I feel like the, the reverse is very much uh, the normal in academia and media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's also good to be able to get that outside uh, perspective because you're able to see the culture um, as someone who was not uh, immersed in it mm-hmm. and and able to properly contrast uh, with American racial dynamics. Right. Yeah, and I think. To, you know, one of the things that I'm often critical of, actually, when it comes to U.S.-based academics, Black or otherwise, talking about race in Brazil, um, and anyway, the general history in Brazil, I think sometimes people try really hard to superimpose um, U.S. racial issues or U.S. contemporary issues onto what's going on in Brazil without recognizing, for example, Brazil's already pre-existing histories of certain things going on. Um, so I'm often, you know, oftentimes I'm having to kind of uh, beat that drum like, hey, guys, even though they're of African descent there, even though they're descendants of slaves in Brazil, um, the economic and social situations, despite looking very similar, are sometimes very, very different 
Um, and in some cases, which again, we can get to later, like policing is even further exacerbated in the Brazilian case. So it's important to be mindful of those differences and also to be mindful of my place as someone who is American and who's going into the environment with a certain level of um, privilege, right? And again, we can get to that because there are, I'm often mistaken as a Brazilian person when I'm there. So my life, my life in Brazil sometimes ends up very much mimicking what other people who look like me are going through in the same place. And that is true because I physically, uh, I've seen your physical mm -hmm. picture. I actually thought you were Brazilian, so I actually didn't know that. So I can see how um, that would happen. Um, so I'm just going to read the email question that um, I got and then... You can start by answering that question, and then we can just spitball into other questions um, from there. And also, anything that you think is of interest for people to know, you don't have to wait for us to ask it. We, If you listen to the show, we're not very good at staying away from digressions <laughs> regardless. And I think people have grown to actually like it. So, yeah, just wherever... I almost said wherever the muse takes you. And, <laughs> oh, that was bad. That's so bad. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I wasn't doing it on purpose, but I'm glad. I'm glad I caught it. Like I was, that was. People would have thought I was making a horrible pun, but wherever the whatever the substitute word is, we should use. Um, takes you. Just you know, go with it. All right. That would have been horrible. That would have been horrible if that came out of my mouth. Okay. <laughs> so here's the email. When listening to your episode 16. It hit me that I'd be really interested to hear your takes on, one, Brazilian white supremacy versus American white supremacy. Even if your conclusion is, quote, unquote, they're the same, that's actually an important point to make because it's common to hear white Brazilians say America is more racist, and it's more common to hear black or mixed race Brazilians say America is far less racist. As an aside, when I went to Europe, I noticed that too. A lot of white Europeans kept telling me how racism is an American thing and they've evolved past it or never had it, while the black Europeans in the same city will always be like, I don't know what those motherfuckers are talking about. This is racist as shit. Um, <laughs> anyway, number two, apartheid, boy apartheid boycotts in the 60s to 80s from racist countries like the US and the UK. Basically, I've never been able to figure out if these boycotts happen mainly because of racial justice advocates showing international solidarity, or if they were mainly because of elites trying to make their own countries look less racist. We definitely want you to talk about number one. If you feel qualified or willing to talk about number two, you're open to sure. talk about that um, as so well. I will talk about number two as well, because there is some overlap actually within my own research on uh, Brazilian leftist movements and the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. So I can definitely address that. Um, I'll start on the Brazilian side just by saying two things that I, whenever I talk about race um, and history in Brazil to um, US-based audiences, one of the things that I often start with are two very popular sayings in Brazil. One of them is much older, one of them is newer. So one saying that you'll hear, uh, or that you don't hear so much, but it's from the period of slavery in Brazil, which lasted very long until 1888. It was the last country in the Western Hemisphere to end slavery. So that's something important to keep in mind. Um, but one thing that you hear is a saying that goes like this. Um, a black woman is for work, a mixed woman is for sex, and a white woman is for marriage. So that's the first phrase. 
The second phrase you hear uh, rather often these days is, if you don't know if you're Black, ask the police. So I think that those two phrases, even though they seem rather hyperbolic, um, I think they do a very good job of sort of quickly capturing what the racial situation is in Brazil and how racial hierarchies and economic hierarchies on top of that work out in the process. Um, so the question that your reader or your, that your listener asked was primarily about white supremacy, but I think even before we get into the question of white supremacy, it's important to understand the origins of that white supremacy. Um, and so, as I mentioned, you know, slavery was going on in Brazil for a very, very long time. And in the case of Brazil, like you see in Haiti and most parts of the Caribbean, the, the idea was basically to work slaves to death because it was much easier in terms of geographic proximity for slave owners and slave traders to get uh, people from Africa because it's literally right across the ocean, right? Um, and for people for people who study slavery, you know, in the U.S., you often hear a phrase that goes yes. kind of like, you know, only 10% of the slaves made it to the U.S. So while we often talk about um, the Black experience in the U.S. and slavery in the U.S., part of that requires us having an understanding of what's going on in the rest of the Americas, which is much greater in number. Um, and and that's, that's really important to keep in mind. So when you go to Brazil, the Black population is huge. And when I say that, it's also worth noting the simple fact that not everyone that I may identify as Black may identify as Black. Um, there are several census categories, and they're all based on color. So for example, um, you will have, uh, you have these, these categories, you have yellow, which is of Asian descent. Uh, you have white, you have pardo, which means someone who's of mixed race. Um, and that doesn't mean direct parentage, by the way. It means any, like, for example, I'm considered sometimes pardo or mulata in Brazil, which means a person who's mixed race, um, even if they're, both of their parents would be considered black in the United States. Um, the other category is preto, which means literally the color black. Um, and usually that kind of language is, it's not as PC anymore to use, but it is on the census, and it's used to refer to people who have very, very dark skin. So, um, and also indígena, which is indigenous. So it's funny because when I used to live in Brazil, I asked, I taught English, um, and I asked my students once, and we were talking about race. I said, like, how would you classify me? Like in the U.S., I consider myself black, right? And they were like, oh no, teacher, you're not black. And I'm like, for me, that was really shocking. Right? I said, how am I not black? Like I look at myself in, every day in the mirror, and I see a black person, right? Um, but I think. The thing to keep in mind in Brazil is that most of the racial categorization is based on what you look like. It's so you will have sometimes people who are in the same family. For example, in my family, my father would be considered a uh, mixed race in some some parts of Brazil because it varies by region as well. Um, my mother might be considered mixed race in some parts of Brazil and white in other parts of Brazil. And I am always almost always considered uh, mixed race even though both of my parents are black and all of my ancestry is black with the exception of some white slave master who got a little ahead of himself and decided to pick someone in my family. Um, so the reality is like that, that's something important to keep in mind in terms of understanding how race operates in Brazil. This is changing a lot though, with um, some of the, some of the developments with the black movement that happens after slavery and well into the present where you have people who have lighter skin, who would technically identify as mixed race or even white in some circumstances, identifying as black because they're saying it's a political uh, move, right? To say that they're black. Um, That's always It's always interesting to hear the different color dynamics because I, I know that, um, or at least I've heard that in South Africa, it's a similar situation where they have the different categories. You know, you have your white South Africans 
Then you have black and then you have what they would define as colored, which would be, you know, your more light skinned or what you describe as maybe mulatto or mixed race people. And they divide those into those three different categories. So I wonder how widespread that is all over the globe. You know, the, that type of color is right. I mean, it's definitely something that you you begin to see in other parts of Latin America, too. Right. Um, and also in the Caribbean. So what's interesting is, you know, when you talk about um, racial oppression in, in many parts of Latin America, sometimes the people who are the oppressors are also people in the U.S. We might consider mixed race or black. Right. Um, but that necessi- don't necessarily identify that way and haven't necessarily lived in that type of um, situation of oppression that you see in the U.S. So. Um, I think sometimes, you know, again, it's very tricky because it depends on the region. Some regions are more racially segregated than others. Like the further south you go, which has a much wider population, there are lots of Italians, Germans, um, Eastern Europeans, people of that uh, descent who were brought in after slavery. You see a lot more racial segregation that is, and you also see more radicalism around race, right? Because people have literally dealt with um, racism in ways that we would normally say are more comparable to what you see in the United States. So it's very overt. Um, one of the issues when you talk to a lot of Brazilians about racism is that sometimes it's hard for them to identify because the racism is much like when we talk about racism now in the United States, all this kind of post-racial bullshit. Um, it's, it's kind of a subtle racism that you can't quite put your finger on. You're like, I'm being treated a certain way, but I don't know if it's because of my race. I don't know if it's because I'm poor. I don't know. You know what I mean? So. Um, I think sometimes in certain regions, especially in the South, you begin to see a lot more radicalism around race and race-based organizing right after slavery. But then in response, and this is where I can really get into the white supremacy aspect of things, um, you start to see actual racial violence, which is something that people often don't know about or talk about as it relates to Brazil. So there are several uh, Brazilian researchers who've dug up uh, cases from the past where people were lynched, uh, people were beaten, people were kidnapped, also houses burned down, the whole thing. Um, and this was happening in Brazil. That's supposedly a racial paradise, right? A uh, racial democracy. And I can, I can talk about the origins of that kind of idea too, because it's definitely political and one that they constructed in large part to frame themselves as different from the rest of the world and different from the United States over periods of time. One of the things I wanted to uh, follow up with, which I think your answer kind of partially went into, is a lot of people don't understand the different um, colonization styles of different uh, world powers. And a lot of countries had very distinct. Well, two things I think really play a role is each country's particular colonization style, especially in particulars to how they dealt with um, intermixing sexually, and also the type of crop. Because, like, for example, um, the Dominican Republic had cattle. The slavery was mostly cattle slavery. And it has a more egalitarian feel than, say, uh, cotton-based slavery or sugar-based slavery. Like, you know, the slaves are riding on the horses alongside the uh, masters it's uh people have different theories about you know both how the intermixing policies of the colonizers as well as the demands of the particular crop the logistics of it uh kind of create social dynamics that play through uh to this day like for example my family's of haitian descent and uh 
the French part of their colonization style was to have buffer classes. Uh, they highly encouraged uh-huh. um, interbreeding, and then they liked to have buffer classes. And their idea was that these buffer classes were kind of racial middle management, you know, and that they can give them um, certain rights. They, the sons of the slave owners, could you know, own property or have access to certain European style education. Whereas in America, it's a one drop rule and, you know, fuck you. Uh, you have a drop, you're going right into the slavery and you can be sold just like anyone else, just on that 50% or 25% or even one eighth uh, African blood. So what light can you shed on the uh, Portuguese colonization and slavery styles and how um, it affects even Brazil uh, to this day? Also, what the slaves were doing there, what their uh, type of slavery was. Right. Um, Sure. So just to answer your second question first, uh, it depends on the region. So in some regions, like in the Northeast, which is where most of the slaves from Africa were dropped off, like that was a hub. And then they were sort of trafficked around the rest of the country and the rest of Latin America and the U.S. Um, They were mainly doing sugar in that region. Um, But then if you go further south, they have crops like coffee. They also had cattle um, in the southwest. So it really just depends on what region you're talking about. Um, There's also instances of a lot of urban slavery in certain parts of Brazil. So this is what kind of lends itself to this idea, supposedly, that equality was, uh, you know, an actual prospect for slaves in Brazil. I'm laughing because it's absurd, right? Um, But I think there's this belief because you had some slaves who were what they called sort of day workers. They were rented out during the day um, and they had to sell in markets. Some were prostitutes, some were engaged in other forms of casual labor. But then they had to send all of, you know, they had to bring all of their profits back to their master. Now, the thing is, is that you do see some instances in Brazil, and a lot of researchers have, again, used this as an example of how Brazilian slavery was somehow uh, better or more humane, which, again, is absurd. Uh, But you do see instances of some slaves who are able to use this kind of day labor to then buy their freedom. Now, this idea, this idea of sort of paid for manumission comes out primarily because of Portuguese styles of enslavement and and colonization. Uh, Because Portugal and Spain were former formerly kind of colonized by North Africans, right? Um, so they're, they're North Africans known as Moors ran shit in Portugal and Spain for 700 years. So a lot of the kind of styles of slaving you see practiced by the Portuguese and also by the Spaniards have traces of this, one of them being that slaves can buy their freedom. Um, but you still see very comparable styles of slaving in Brazil, as you see in the United States, in the sense that it's generational, right? Um, At the same time, you do also see some slave owners who, if they do have children with their slaves, some of those slaves are freed. Um, But you also see this in rare cases in the United States, too. So sometimes when you're comparing slaveries, it's almost a matter of competing exceptions more than it is uh, sort of a comprehensive view of rules, if that makes sense. Um, Different slave owners practice things in different ways. And then if you go to huge uh, slave plantations like you see in the north for sugar uh, harvesting, for example, you're very rarely going to see a slave that's freed uh, by his master. And you're very rarely going to see a slave who's allowed to sort of do his own thing on the side. The one last thing I want to say, too, is that in the Brazilian and often Caribbean slaving system, there was no sense of sort of um, there wasn't there wasn't necessarily the same type of relationship you see with slaves in the U.S. to their master and the master's family as you see 
or yeah, as you see in the U.S. So oftentimes slaves were left really to their own devices after work. They're, they had to grow their own food. They had to sew their own clothes. I mean, slaves in the U.S. sewed their own clothes too. But my point here is that there was not sort of a centralized source for slaves because the idea, as I said, was to work slaves. They didn't really care about the general well-being of slaves. Um, they didn't really care how long they survived because the ease at which they could get new slaves. Yeah, was, that's an important right there, point too. Because you know? um, Haiti, uh, Haiti is very, very uh, African. Uh, the culture is very mm-hmm. African, and it's interesting because a lot of times I'll hear uh, an African person from West Africa. Uh, when I was growing up, I used to always think that they they were Haitian, and then I would talk to them because I'd hear them like uh, speaking and from far away, I'm thinking they're speaking Haitian Creole. Then I would would get close. I'm like, wait, the words are all wrong. I remember as a kid, I would ask the person, uh, (laughs) you know, something in Creole, like saying like, are you Haitian? And they'd be like, uh, oh no, I'm from Ghana, from this. But um, the accent was so similar. I used to always wonder about that. But also just the culture when I would see videos of, uh, African people doing things, I would be shocked at how similar it was to um, rituals and things I've seen uh, Haitian people do. And I found out later what you said, that they were constantly importing our fresh slaves. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. in the U.S. where you have a breeding industry. Like it was, Slave breeding was a whole industry in the U.S. because it was actually right. cheaper to breed them than to constantly import them. And Later on, that, that became illegal anyway. But there was not this idea of, in a lot of these uh, colonies in the Caribbean and different parts of the Americas, there wasn't this idea of we can just keep um, breeding them. It was easier to just keep bringing them in. The average life of a slave, I almost said shelf life, which is dehumanizing, but it's, it's how you they kind of lapse into that. Yeah, they- exactly. It's how, they, it's, it's how they thought of it. Like, you know, I'm not endorsing the idea, but that's really. But they were. They were products. Mm-hmm. They were tools. Uh, the average shelf life of a African slave in Haiti was six years. That's, right. uh, that's how long uh, you would live. So at any given time, most of your slaves were one generation out of Africa. And I also think it's kind of why it was harder to indoctrinate like a lot of the Haitian slaves because they were still very in touch with that old African culture. I mean, you see this, sorry to interrupt, you see this a lot in Brazil as well. So for anyone who's interested in religion, for example, there are lots of what we call syncretic religions in Brazil, where they blend um, indigenous African practices with that of Catholicism. So candomblé is a good example. And if you're familiar with, I mean, you were mentioning a lot of the um, practices that you hear people celebrate in Ghana and the like. Um, there's been a lot of research done on the different uh, the, the connections between the gods in Candomblé and the people that are worshipped or the gods that are worshipped in certain older religions in, in West Africa. So there is there's often very much a direct connection between, like you said, this idea of bringing in more slaves and reviving the population and having these traditions continue. Um, but at the same time, you see a lot of traditions. I mean, I'm from the South originally, and I will tell you, when you go to a white church, a black church and a white church in the South and throughout the United States is a completely different experience. Um, and many practices that black people continue in their religious, you know, religious practice is also very closely linked to African practices. So I don't like, I mean, I don't want to say that just because we weren't being revived at quite the same numbers, um, that those traditions were somehow uh, reduced or weakened in the U.S. because you do still see them 
um, in different ways. Yeah, I think you still see them in um, the Black American culture, but I do think they can be a lot more uh, disguised. Because I know that was a big debate. Was it? Uh, mm-hmm. I might be getting these names wrong. You probably know them. Heskovitz and the guy who wrote Black Bourgeoisie. I remember there was this big American debate about how much African culture is in um, is in Black American culture. And I think um, this guy, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, uh, Heskovitz kind of made a very good case for showing that there is a lot of African culture. Melville, uh-huh. Melville, uh, Hers- yeah. yeah. And why am I drawing a blank? Who did black bourgeoisie? Um, Fraser, E. Franklin Fraser, E. Franklin Fraser versus Melvin, uh, Herskovitz. And, uh, Herskovitz, um, was the one who made a big case that, uh, there is a lot of African culture still in, uh, black American culture. And I think, um, history, uh, kind of went with, uh, Herskovitz, but like with, I know like when you see like when I see Brazil or Haiti or Cuba, for example, and a lot of the culture there, it's so undisguised and undeniable. Like mm-hmm. it's very in your face. You can't, you don't need an anthropologist to, you know, kind of make the case right. uh, for you. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think there are there are certain elements that are definitely more apparent to the outside uh, observer, right? Um, but what's interesting too, as we think, talk about that, and again, linking it back to the white supremacy argument, uh, right now in Brazil, you're seeing a lot of crackdowns and antagonizing of people who um, celebrate these religions that are African based, uh, because especially right now, there's a growing uh, right wing Christian evangelical movement happening in Brazil. Um, and that's not, it's, it's linked to the U S but it's not as closely linked to the U S as some people think it it has a lot of different origins. Um, and they have been trying to criminalize, uh, certain practices of these groups. They've also been known to set fire to their, uh, spaces of worship. And there's, there's been a lot of controversy around, um, the restoration and continuing sustaining of these groups, especially in light of the right-wing government on the local and the federal level now too. Um, I don't know if you wanted me to talk about, I guess I I should talk about this actually, in terms of, again, thinking about the white supremacy element. So I'm interested also in discussing some of the responses that people in Brazil have had to white supremacy, because I think it helps sort of shed some light on what kind of white supremacy they were dealing with. Um, So right after slavery, you have, like you see in the United States, a lot of social groups that form by black people. They have, like we have in the U.S., problems with respectability politics and all of that. But in general, you see a real kind of um, a significant group of people trying to build around the idea of race. And they form social clubs. They have alternative education because the difference between Brazil and the United States, there was not even an attempt for reconstruction. So right after slavery, they were like, good luck. And they didn't really have any sort of government safety net even attempted. Um, A lot of people in certain areas still had to work on the plantations where they had worked as slaves. They had issues with jobs now because they were bringing in a lot of immigrants from Europe um, and even parts of Asia. Like you see a lot of Japanese immigrants coming at this time who are literally given land grants by the Brazilian government. So imagine you're coming out of slavery, you don't have a regular job, you don't want to go back to your plantation, and on top of that, you're competing with hundreds of thousands of new immigrant populations from all over the world that are receiving grants from your government that just, you know, like, 
basically doesn't care about you. Yeah. So um, there were lots of groups that formed wow. at this point for advocacy for black people. And then over time, um, you see these groups kind of wane and, and then get stronger. They go back and forth depending on the, who's in charge politically. Um, and how the government is cracking down on the movements as well. But in the 1930s, for example, you see an actual political party that's made up of Black Brazilians um, in Rio and in Sao Paulo, and then they end up having a, a branch in the Northeast as well, where it's literally like, imagine kind of a, can you, I mean, I don't know if you can imagine in the 1930s in the, like, the U.S. having a political party just for Black interests that's run, led by Black people. So some parts of this history get kind of swallowed when we think about Brazil as solely being a place that's like all mixed people or that doesn't really have any black movement of its own. Yeah. Something you just mentioned, I just want you to expand on it real quick. Um, yeah, that's something crazy uh, that um, they had a policy, an actual importation of white people policy, specifically mm-hmm. geared toward whitening the population. Like they had an actual uh, government policy to import white people for the express purpose of de-Africanizing um, the population, which I think is uh, crazy. I know that was like in the in the 40s, right? The, the Brazilian government had a decree? No, no, this is, this is right after slavery. And actually, they're planning it before the end of slavery. So slavery ends in 1888, and they're kind of getting the ball rolling, rolling in the mid-1800s. Uh, they don't, you know, they start implementing it towards the end of slavery because they know slavery is about to end. So that's when they start uh, you know, giving grants, for example, to German immigrants, to Italian immigrants. Um, but what's funny is that they don't, they don't expect the fact that some of these Italian immigrants, for example, are, uh, socialists and like anarchists and radicals themselves. Mm, So they end up having a lot of protests in factories and farms and things. There's all sorts of really interesting political stuff that's going on at the, the turn of the century, but uh, they didn't really expect um, some of the some of the immigrants themselves being radical and active. In yeah, didn't they issue a decree again later in the forties about that to import Europeans again? They ha- yeah, it goes through different stages uh, depending on the labor that's needed, and it's again like it depends on the region, it depends on the country. Um, there are local and federally based, um, you know, legislation to to bring in different groups. And there's even what's interesting at this time, too, is you start to see, again, sort of end of turn of the century, end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. um, You see uh, all these debates about who's considered white, much like you see in the U.S., but the the direction they take is really different. So, for example, they bring in a lot of Turks. They bring in people from Lebanon, uh, Syrians. They bring in Japanese and they consider them white under the law. Uh, so it's kind of at least temporarily, right? The, the Lebanese, Syrians and Turks remain white under law. Japanese are then sort of relegated to the yellow category, but there are all these, it's really interesting to read the debates because they're like very different from what you see in the U S where they're saying, well, we need the labor, but we're not going to give, we're not going to extend whiteness to them just yet. Whereas in the Brazilian case, it was rather, rather quickly, because as you said, the, the population of former slaves was humongous compared to the United States. And they definitely needed some race mixing. But again, I just want to make it clear that despite the sort of image of uh, race mixing being the norm in Brazil, what ends up happening is a lot of this mixing takes place along class lines. So for example, you don't see, we go to social events at this time and in the present, um, you don't see a lot of, like everything is very, very segregated. Uh, it's the higher up in classes that you go, you know? So for example, when I'm doing research on a university campus or at an archive, I'm often the only black person there with the exception of the people who are cleaning. Right. Um, and so that sometimes can just highlight 
the ways that that idea of and, and, you know, this is something that, again, sort of starts in the 1930s with a specific person uh, named Gilberto Freire. But he really puts in this idea of, like, Brazil being a racial democracy, Brazil giving opportunities to people regardless of their color. But what you see happening on the ground is very different from that image. Um, and it's an image that only uh, sort of gets projected even more strongly when they're undergoing military dictatorship because they want to be able to hide some of the other things that they're doing to the population and make sort of clean up their image in the international on the international stage by saying, look, we have race mixing here. Look at the United States. They have Jim Crow and all these problems. So we don't have these problems because we're a racial democracy. When in reality, it, it's not quite like that. Wow. Yeah. I cut off somebody's question. Somebody was asking a question. So. Uh... No, no, I, I was just actually I thought my my uh, mic was <laughs> I thought my mic was muted. I was oh, actually okay. just. Kind of taken aback by some of the things. Oh, that so I was you're just reacting to some of the shocking stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Some. <laughs> well, actually, because there are some similarities um, and some overlap to what she was discussing in terms of um, immigrants being allowed to come in and 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 receive work and certain benefits and things like that, and to have a sort of de facto whiteness granted to them. Because you always hear about that type of thing here in the United States. Now, it's not formally recognized, but um, it's it's very much implied a lot of times when you have um, other ethnicities that come to the United States and they're gr- sort of granted like this de facto layer of mm-hmm. whiteness that they're sort of connected with. So I just thought that the overlap is very interesting. But I did want to ask you... Um, you hear a lot about like the situation in the favelas and things like that in Brazil. And, you know, I just thought that the strategy that they use there seems a lot more refined than it was here in the United States. But there is some overlap in how they seem to be able. They're really good at isolating or isolating black people in these concentrated mm-hmm. areas and then heavily policing those areas. But at the same time sucking out whatever resources and monies that they can from those those areas as well. So can you do you have any idea or or do you have any expertise in that area as far as what's going on in the favelas and how they're over policed there and things of that sort? Definitely, I can speak to that. Um so what's interesting too about the favelas that links back to what I was speaking about earlier is the simple fact that the favelas themselves were formed by a lot of runaway slaves. Mm. Um, so there were slaves and people of color, indigenous people, mixed people, et cetera, who were living in a lot of the city centers that were pushed out further and further to the outskirts, especially in Rio, because the king of Portugal actually comes to live in Brazil and lives in Rio. So oh. in order to kind of prepare for his arrival, they push poor people out, 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 further out into the suburbs, um, or what, we, what they call suburbios, which means suburbs, but not quite in the same way we say in the United States. Um, oh, so these yeah. suburbs are basically slumlands, you know, outskirts that are poorly funded, that don't have any resources. And the only time you see the government show up there is to basically chastise people for having too many kids and being diseased. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, it's very familiar, right? Um, and so they have all these yeah. kinds of social experiments and things. They're, it's called positivism. So they're trying all these different, you know, medical experiments and social experiments in the favelas and nothing really works. Um, and then eventually the government over time just kind of, they have, they also try to create these little 
almost like what we see with project, the project movement in the United States to kind of create to, to better yeah, yeah. the lives of the people by like putting them all in, these, in the same area. Um, but the reality is eventually all of this breaks down because the governments, as they switch parties, um, as they undergo the dictatorship, they start majorly neglecting the communities, um, which they didn't really care about to begin with. And so what you see now is sort of an afterthought, an aftermath of a lot of that neglect um, and if you want to get down to the socialist side of it, I mean, basically it's what we call the surplus population, right? So they were once useful and important as slaves and they were useful as, and important as factory workers. But after all that uh, collapses, um, and after you see so much competition, for example, with immigrant populations and the like, they are considered disposable in a very literal sense. And policing, um, you know, one of the things that people talk about with regard to all the changing hands politically is that much like you hear with neighborhoods in the United States, it doesn't really matter who's president. It doesn't really matter who's governor because at the end of the day, they're treated the same. Um, So for example, recently, just last week, uh, on March 14th, there was a woman by the name of Marielle Franco, who was a Rio city councilwoman, who was queer, socialist, a single mother, you know, kind of like the textbook case of someone that you would expect to fail, right? From it's within this kind of society that's racist, sexist, classist, fill in the blank. Um, And she often one of the things she often rallied against was the fact that like people even who were of the liberal parties were doing a lot of damage in the favelas. They were putting militarized police operations in the favelas. They were putting the actual military in the favelas. Um, this is something that you saw intensified during the World Cup and during the Olympic Games. Um, and then very recently, because this year is an election year, and after the, the, uh, the coup in 2016, where Joma was forced out of office, she was a recently democratically elected president who was forced out of office under very su- suspect circumstances. Um, and so after that, you know, you started to see the increase of a lot of austerity mm-hmm. programs to basically make people more poor. You started to see an increase of gun flows into favelas, drug flows into favelas. And so then the police and the government said, oh, look, now we have to police these gangs, right? We have to control these groups. Uh, the violence is too extreme, which again is arguable, right? It's an election year. So they're trying to make it look like they have order and law and all of this. Um, but they send, and they use that kind of like, they use the same language you hear Republicans use here, the law and order. <laughs> Wow. And they sent in the military. And now this is something they also did under Joma during the Olympics and the World Cup. Um, But they send in the military and the military right now, as we speak, is occupying Rio. So people like Marielle and her party and many other black, you know, black human rights activists were saying, look, we are not going to take living under this occupation. This is insane. Like you're treating us like like we are the enemy when we're also citizens and we also have rights. Um, and she was actually murdered. Like I said, she was assassinated. The bullets that were used were found to have been federal police issue, um, which means that whoever killed her most likely has an affiliation or him or themselves are police officers. Um, so you see a lot of this. There's a lot of assassinations, a lots of lots of political control, lots of deprivation. Um, and it's intentional and it's very targeted. And, you know, I think that this, it does, it does sort of heighten the degree of um, racial tensions in the country because you hear, I mean, I would hear things all the time. I remember once I was at a friend's house and her, um, there was another friend with her who was white. Her husband was black. And she said to me, plain as day, she said, joking, I hope that our baby isn't born black. And I'm like, don't you see that I'm black? like, I'm sitting there like confused. Like, <laughs> right, right. And don't you see that your husband is black? But I think that there's, or I know that there's this association between blackness and poverty because poverty and blackness in Brazil are very linked. 
very closely linked because the government continues to do things to sort of exacerbate the conditions of people of color um, in the country. And it, it's not accidental. So, right. um, so yeah, and another, it's long term. Right. So another scenario where they created the problem in the first place, they right. isolate these people, deprive them of resources and basic needs, and then turn around and blame them and say, oh, we need to stop this and send in the police and the military when That's they right. themselves are the ones who created the problem. So, yeah. That's right. And you don't even, when you go to favelas, for example, they do literally everything themselves, guys. So they build their own homes. They have, they're the ones who do the water management, the waste management, the electricity. You go, if you look and you look at some of the, the electricity poles, like I don't know, the energy poles, I'm not sure what the word is in English. I've forgotten now. Uh, power cables, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. You see that they've literally done, everything is DIY, right? Um, and a lot of these people, as you were mentioning earlier, and I think it's a really important point for us to talk about, is the fact that these are the people who are maids. These are the people who are bricklayers. These are the people who are construction workers. These are the people who are working at the front desk and at the McDonald's. And at you know, in everyday life, you see people from favelas who are making the city and the country run. And yet they, wow. they are deprived and neglected. And the people who, whose houses they clean and whose lives they serve and keep running are the ones who antagonize them rather directly. Um, you hear uh, there's a lot of prejudice towards poor people and poor people of color in particular in Brazil um, that is still very active. And so one of the responses by the black movement in Brazil has been to push for affirmative action uh, in schools and um, at the university level, at least, and then the betterment of public schools in Brazil. Because what's interesting is that college is actually free in Brazil at public schools. Um, and the public schools are elite in Brazil. So they're like, you know, the Harvard, Yale and Princeton of Brazil are public schools. They're federally owned and state run and they are free. The only problem is that all the rich people and predominantly white send their kids to private schools for high school so they can afford to get tutors. Right, right. They do better on the test. Right. And then they get into college. Right. They get into free college, whereas poor people half the time don't even finish high school because they are, they have to work at an early age. Like this woman I mentioned, Maria de Franco, she started working at 11 and this is a common case. And so you have this, this sort of, this very obvious and blatant um, racism, systemic racism, personal everyday racism. Um, And so people have been trying to respond to that through legislative measures. So the affirmative action in Brazil, just to, to wrap this up is, both class and race based, which I think is important to, to kind of hone in on. Right? Yeah. So those, that's where they, the two mm-hmm. intersect, where class and race sort of intersect in perpetuity down there. Um, I was curious, um, just on a, on a personal level, do they have the same type of thing down there where they'll use an example of a dark skinned person that made it out <laughs> of, a, of a situation oh, yes. of poverty <laughs> and sort of hold them Yes. question. Okay. Uh, yes, they do. And, uh, you know, I always say, like, if you're rich, you're more likely to be white. And if you're poor, you're almost certainly black. And so the people who do make it out are often, like we see in the U.S., they're, they're sports, they're athletes, right? Um, a few celebrities. But there's really, there's, like, not a black middle class in Brazil. It's very, very, very small. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you have people like, um, you know, like Pelé, for example, the soccer player. And he himself has been very on the fence about identifying as black. He does all these sorts of things to kind of help the poor, but he never wants to talk about his race. And so mm. he has a very strange relationship with the black movement. There's a lot um, of people like that here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you also have people like um, Neymar, who is a famous soccer player, 
And he too has had this sort of strange relationship with race. So if you look at old pictures of Neymar when he was younger, um, he's from Sao Paulo originally. And he's like my color. He's like medium brown skin. He has what we would say in the South is like BDBs. His hair is very tightly coiled, right? So I know you all know what I'm talking about. So there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No there, are pictures, there are pictures of him with very tightly coiled curly hair. You know, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that this kid. I love that you use that term, though. Like, wow. But there's no doubt, yeah. right? Martin, like, Martin made that really popular, too. I remember Martin used to always say BDB. But the point here, the reason I use that is because you, there is no doubt in anyone's mind when you see Neymar as a younger, as a teenager, that he's a black person. Right. Um, and then, you know, he his family is also his his mother is mixed. Uh, his his dad is also mi- of multiracial background. But, you know, you look at them and you see like people who are clearly of African descent. You look at Neymar and see that he's clearly of African descent. And pretty much for the entirety of his soccer career, he's sort of been trying to distance himself from his blackness and in ways that have very much angered uh, the black population who's at least invested in these sorts of things in Brazil, because they say, look, man, like, we know you're black. You can't hide it from us. You can straighten your hair. You can bleach your hair. You can like have a white wife. You can, yeah, that's another thing going back to the earlier phrase about which women are for what positions, right? Almost all of them have white wives, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with marrying white women. But the point mm-hmm. is, is that, you know, in terms of even interracial relationships, you see kind of the same dynamics that we often complain of in the United States happening in Brazil. Um, you watch TV in Brazil, it's the same thing. So like you hardly will ever see uh, in Brazilian film. TV shows, whatever. First of all, they don't show black people hardly ever unless they're maids or like criminals. But then when you... <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, and that's, right. a, that's, across the, that's across the diaspora. Like, you see that in the telenovelas, like, you wouldn't know that there's dark or black people in um, in Mexico, for example, if you look at those things. Right. But also with... Um, I watch a lot of uh, Indian movies, but I like to watch them across the... the um, decades and generations and some of the ones from the 40s 50s 60s those would at least have some like medium dark people and it was only the really dark mm-hmm. indian people that would be relegated to just being workers background um yeah and extras and you know laborers but now like even like those medium brown people from the old indian movies you won't even see them at all now was just uh just people who look like light bright near white uh, mm-hmm. orange and blonde highlights in their hair. It's very uh, moving in that direction. It's kind of interesting how colonization just kind of leaves that stain. I want to ask Wendy a question. And similarly to... Oh, I want to ask, oh, well, you can respond to that and then I can, I can ask the question that I want to ask. No, I was just going to say really quickly too. I mean, I think that's a perfect parallel to Brazil because you see when you watch television, like everyone is white. You would think you were watching Swedish TV or like Swiss TV. And then you go outside and you're like, holy shit, like everyone is brown or black. Why do you not see them on television? And the in terms of the, the census numbers, the people right now, they're saying it's a little bit over 50%. But like with my own observations, all of the people who maybe are kind of identifying as mixed or something else, if you put them in the United States, they would be considered black. So it's weird to see such whitening on the TV screen and in the news and in politics as well. Well, I was going to ask, um, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, your friend and how she was hoping that her kid would be born black. And then I was, I was wondering about you know, skin bleaching, you were, you know, all that type of thing that you hear about mm-hmm. in a lot of countries like in Nigeria and whatnot, and 
people going as you know as far as bleaching their skin and you know getting the colored contacts and all that to try to is there, is is that prevalent down there? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. So it's not as prevalent. And just to clarify, that wasn't my friend. That was a friend of a friend. So I just want to be clear. Oh, I don't have sorry. any um, racist friends in Brazil. Uh, but yeah, but it is, it, is, <laughs> it is not a thing in Brazil uh, quite yet, at least not to, you know, there were, there's some stuff that happened in like the 1800s where people were using different kinds of, they were not necessarily bleaching their skin, but they were using rice powder and things to kind of they would literally like wear really light makeup on their skin. Um, but the main kind of land, the, the main area battleground, if you will, in terms of racial aesthetics really comes out in terms of hair. So you'll see a lot of people who like will straighten their hair, chemically straighten their hair, or they'll um, even by the way you dress, for example, that can kind of change your racial status. So for example, if I say, if let's say I walk into a store um, and I have my hair natural, then I would most likely be considered black. Right. Without without that much debate. Now, if I go in that same store and I have my hair straightened and I'm dressed like I, a wealthier person, I may not necessarily be considered black. I may be considered mixed race or something else. Um, but they wouldn't necessarily use the term. Uh, they wouldn't use negra, which is black, the more political black. Um, and they, they wouldn't even necessarily use um, mulatta to refer to me if I had my hair straight. It really just depends. It kind, it's, that's the weird part. But I would see, I mean, I have the same experience in New York, right? Like, you know, it, it depends on, you know, region. But there's not so much of that. Something, that. something that fascinates me about white people and the lies that they tell themselves, and it's just weird how international it is. That phrase, black women are for work and mixed women are for sex and white women are for marriage. And it's like if black women were just for work, then why are there so many mixed women in every single uh, <laughs> culture? Right. Like, they can't even keep their dicks out of black women on the slave ships. Like, they just get right to it. And it's just interesting, because I think to a degree, it's almost like a lighter telling themselves. I don't know why they pretend that black women aren't very attractive or alluring to them. It's, it's such an interesting... Um, fiction that I think a lot of black women, particularly dark-skinned black women, actually end up uh, internalizing and believing to a degree. But, you know, I mean, I've said this in the past, like, uh, I've, I've noticed, especially now, like, in Europe, right, now that um, uh, interracial relationships are, like, way more in vogue for uh, white men and uh, black women, a lot of times what the uh, white men are choosing are really dark, very African, very uh, chocolate-looking women, and <laughs> actually, actually, I don't like saying chocolate. I shouldn't say that. Although um, that's a very Brazilian thing for you to say. Just, oh, is yeah. that a bad thing? Uh, I, well, I have this whole theory about... Oh. Uh, well, well, a lot of my theories are, are kind of crackpot, but people <laughs> seem to enjoy them, so I'll, I'll share it. Uh, I feel like... Okay, like, nobody ever calls white people vanilla. Mm-hmm. Nobody says that. Nobody has a food analogy for like white people. Mm-hmm. They always have food analogies for like black and brown people, like caramel, right. uh, whatever. And I think it's something that white people create and black people have internalized and repeated from them. But I think they view us as food, as something consumable. Oh, so this is the reason I said this is a super Brazilian thing to say is because in Portuguese, the word, the slang for having sex is to eat. So the word comer, which means to eat, people will say like, I oh, vou comer essa garinha, uh, you know, gachinha lá. It means like, I'm going ha- to fuck that girl over there. I don't know if I can say F, the F word. 
Eu vou comer essa gatinha aí. Gatinha é like a hot girl. It means cat, little cat, literally, but it means like a hot girl. Gatinha. Yeah, gatinha. So they say comer, which doesn't refer to oral sex. It can, but it gen it literally just means to have sex. Um, so it's ironic that, or not ironic, it's probably fitting, I should say. And they also have a lot of nicknames. Like you see, again, I'm seeing this mm. as a Southerner, right? Um, they have a lot of nicknames for different tones of skin. So like how we have red bone and stuff in the South, you'll hear different phrases like that um, to kind of refer to people as like nicknames based on their color. Um, but going back to your comment on, uh, you know, like race mixing in terms of, of now sort of being in vogue, um, You know, one of the things in Brazil is that like it's there. One thing that I encountered that I wasn't quite used to in the United States is that, for example, white men would hit on me in Brazil, which wouldn't happen in the United States so much. Right. So in the U.S., I would get hit on by black men um, and Latino men who are like clearly, you know, like stereotypical, quote unquote, stereotypically Latino. Right. Not because they can be black and white and be Latino, too. Um, but I would get hit on in Spanish and stuff. So I'm like, okay. Yeah people would assume that I was Dominican or whatever else. But then in Brazil, you get hit on, I would get hit on by white men, but it was like always, always sexualized in ways that like white men in the US, in my personal experience would not do. And so I think sometimes again, people coming from the US who go there may, and especially women, right, may make the assumption that, oh, because white men are open to seeing me as sexually attractive or seeing me as attractive at all, then therefore there's sort of a barrier that's been broken down racially. But the reality is like, you're not an equal yet. Like you're not wow. going to be, he's not necessarily going to marry you. Although to add really quickly, the other thing that's important is that we're American, right? And so the idea of being American kind of whitens you as well, if that makes sense. Because it's a, it's a status thing. No, that's, yeah, that's interesting because you hear a lot about that, um, that same dynamic playing out internationally where I remember um, a discussion that was being had about um, a black woman that had traveled to Italy and um, she was making the comment about how open and open-minded everyone is out there as far as interracial dating goes and things like that. And someone was like, well, They throw bananas at black soccer players in Italy. Let's not act like this is mm -hmm. some type of a racial panacea. You know what I mean? It's, it, they understand racial dynamics. Yeah. Well, she was lying to herself anyway, because I think she right. even admitted that a lot of them, uh, you know, she'd have to get over that initial thought that the guys thought that she was a prostitute. Yeah. You know, so, it, you know, a lot of them, they lie to themselves about, you know, that sort of post-racial. And the men do too. You know, it's not just the, the sister. The men do too. You know, men, um, there's this whole documentary, well, if you want to call it a documentary, on YouTube about black men in Brazil. And oh, yeah, I saw that American black, yeah, going down to Brazil and just imagining this place where they're just free, nobody judges them. The women are just full of cooperation, unlike mm -hmm. quote unquote American black women. And so, you know, you have a lot of men that, that delude themselves as well. So it's not just women. Uh, one thing that fascinates me is that uh, I feel like, because I feel like there's this kind of denial about um, the attractiveness or allure that uh, women of color have on uh, men worldwide, but, you know, particularly like the darker and um, more African you look, the more 
I think, quote unquote, flavor you're um, considered to have. So I think a lot of times, whether it's black men or white men, European men, when they have the fantasy of, you know, Brazil being hot or sexy, they don't think of a Giselle. Like Giselle has no hips or butt. And she's pretty, but she can (laughs) just be a generic American pretty. Like, you know, like I think she's a big hit in Applebee's country, really. You know, I think maybe, (laughs) yeah, I think maybe that population of white men, you know, would want to go to Brazil and see her. But I think what most people, whether uh, white, black, uh, Hispanic, Asian, when you fantasize about like a hot Brazilian, it doesn't look like Giselle. But I find it's interesting that she's their most um, celebrated, well-known, yes, celebrated, um, uh, sexual attractiveness export, uh, so to say. That and she's, like, white. she's white. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah she, she's white. Yeah, she has. Yeah, yeah, she's she's not very curvy. She's not, you know. Yeah, like like when she's guys. Literally talk, white. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When guys talk about like a hot Brazilian, they're not thinking about um, Giselle. And I just want to say one thing because I hate leaving a point half explained because uh, Mike was asking why I don't like saying chocolate, and it's like I think this is affectation that happens in uh, academia and media where they always keep saying black bodies, and I mm-hmm. think it gets kind of tired because. They use it in situations where just black people would work. Mm-hmm. But unlike some people, I don't think it's a totally useless term. And I think sometimes it is useful. And I think uh, sexually, like black bodies, I've talked in the past about how I think it's ingrained in white people to feel a kind of entitlement to um, to uh, black bodies, but also to consume it. Like we're like kind of a full sensual experience sitting, like all five senses, like white women are more to look at in the legend like you know they're more like a visual thing but um non-white people are something that you consume like the word sensual the literal classical meaning of sensual means engaging all five senses like people just think sensual is just um another word for like sexual but what sensual like literally means is you're engaging all my senses so like uh, so beautiful is just I'm looking at you. You're visual, but people of color, I think, are more in the white imagination, like sensual, like like we're for tasting, we're for touching, we're for our smell. Like you know, we in the white imagination, we're evoking all five smells. So uh, to like a white guy, say like a slave owner or a colonizer, his woman is like a beauty. She's a trophy. You put her on a case, but she's not really for touching, tasting, whatever. She's not very enjoyable to, you know? She's something that, she's like the good towels you bring up for company, you know? But you don't really use them, you know? You're, they're just for show, but the worker woman, the the poor white woman, the, um, the African, the Asian, the Indian, whatever, they're sensual, like, they're there for me, like, to taste. They evoke everything. Like, when I think of them, a smell comes to mind, a taste comes to mind, a texture comes to mind. And I think that's why they refer to us with these um, food names all the time. And I think because we're internalized, you know, because they're basically our cultural parents. We get a lot of stuff from them. We start referring to each other like that. And I kind of try not to do that anymore. Like, uh, but... You know, I've never thought about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So well, I've uh, never looked at it from that perspective before. That's very interesting. And I'm going to never not... Be able to yeah, because, you know, 
they, yeah, they never talk about themselves, like food. And likewise, because they're our cultural parents, we never think to do it either. Like, you know, I never see like a white person and say, wow, man, like, uh, you said, look, some sweet Swiss cheese, you know. <laughs> you remind me of vanilla ice cream, you know. I don't know, man. I don't know. Like, like, you know, like my brother, he, he calls them. He calls them. He calls the white girls Wonder Bread. He's like, "Hell, oh, um, cute little Wonder Bread right there." <laughs> cute little slice of Wonder um, Bread. But wait, people say Wonder Bread like sexually. I feel like people say that as almost. No, he. No, he. I, I think it's a, a cute little slice of Wonder Bread he, right he, there, he, or you know, look at that no, little no, pretty, snowflakes. Yeah, snowflakes. Visual, like you know, I think Snow Bunny is snowflakes, but yeah, flavor wise. But oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just want to like add in a history note here though again. Um, one of the things that, that is is interesting about this whole conversation is the fact that like a lot of the imagery that people have of Brazilians and in particular Brazilian women comes from the time period, like I said, where they were trying to establish themselves as like the racial paradise um, as opposed to the United States, right? So when you think about carnival, when you think about you know women in the carnival outfits and all of that, a lot of this stuff was popularized even further during the military dictatorship when they were using it as a tourist, as a way to attract tourists, right? Um, and so I think it's, again, you have to kind of politicize all of it too. And if we're talking about colonialization, like you know, colonialism, um, of course, the idea, the popular idea is going to be that people of color are for enjoying physically because that helps to sort of rationalize the process of rape. And it makes it much easier to say, well, she wanted it. This is how they are, right? And you see a lot of this in, in the Brazilian case as well, that sort of legitimizing and justification of objectifying women's bodies on the basis of, of doing whatever men wanted to do just because, you know, it, it fits into this kind of national narrative of, well, of course, we don't have any issues with race. Everybody talks, everybody marries, everybody's having a good time. It's a party all the time. Um, but the reality is that certain women are relegated to certain spaces and that oftentimes relates to their race and their economic background. Um, and look at a lot of the words that people use for uh, women of color versus white women. Like, I think women of color are more likely to be called hot. And that's still like a tactile thing. Like, you know, hot is not just a look, but you mm -hmm. touch somebody and they burn you. Like, you know, whereas like, a white woman is like fair or like, you know, beautiful or whatever or or, or spicy. Like, you know, they always probably like spicy. Like, you know, you taste it. It makes your tongue tingle. Oh, no, I, I, I I think that goes back to mm -hmm. something that we discussed before, and that's white as the sort of default normative, Flavorless, right? Yeah, and then anything yeah. else other than that is exotic, right? Exoticized, right? So when you say hot or chocolate or whatever or um, whatever color or, or food analogy you want to use, that's just another way to exoticize mm -hmm. and and you and make other groups of people others as opposed to the normative, which is quite... Well, 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 there are things that are meant to be consumed and used and things that are meant to be, like, viewed and, like, valued. Like, for example, like, if it's something like, say, like, in Action Comics number one, like, the first um, um, issue where Superman appears, it's valuable not for its reading, but by how little use it is. Like, if it's not read, it's actually more valuable. Like, the less... Like, it's meant to be put in a bag and viewed and, um, you know, put on the wall or locked in the safe. And if you actually, mm -hmm. like, read that thing, the more you consume it, the more you use it, its value goes down. Like, you're actually not supposed to use it. I think that's what, what white people, white women are. Like, they're not meant to be actually consumed. 
You know, that, they just collect these items. Huh? Exactly. They just, they just collect these items. Like we're meant to be eaten, used, used up, you know? And mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I think that's another part of it too. It's not just that it's default and normative. It's, it's valuable. Like it's, yeah, it, it's valuable for how it's not used because visual things are kind of meant not to be used. They're meant to be looked at. It's like the art in the museum. It's hanging on the wall. You know, if you put that, in your house and move right. it around and you don't protect it. Like it actually goes down in value, but you know, a really cool, um, disposable fun comic book, you know, you read it over and over again, then it's done. You toss it. Yeah. But, um, uh, I also want to go into, if you get a chance to the, uh, South African thing, cause you said it's important to show how it uh, relates. Yeah, so um, a lot of my research, like I said, has to do with leftist networks and multiracial leftist networks uh, during the Cold War. And a lot of the people that I'm reading about um, and working on in Brazil are also interested in a lot of movements that are going on in Africa rather directly, one of them being uh, the anti-apartheid movement. So there is a group of, in particular, south, uh, south uh, southern part of Brazil and Sao Paulo and other cities in the deep south of Brazil, um, who are really interested in engaging with not necessarily South Africans themselves, but they're definitely reading South African thinkers. They're reading, uh, you know, liberation fighters. They're going to protests against apartheid. Um, and I think there are a lot of parallels drawn by those activists to their situation in Brazil as well. They see themselves as racially and economically disenfranchised. And so this is why they often, um, join in on sort of anti-colonial and anti-apartheid movements that are happening in Africa. But I think that one of the one of the questions that or the question I should say that your listener had was specifically about kind of the white and elite aspects of the anti-apartheid movement and whether or not that was true. OK, um, quick, quick thing. Do you want me to repeat what sure. they asked? Would that yeah, go ahead. be of interest? OK. OK, so what they said is apartheid boycotts in the 60s to 80s from racist countries like the U.S. and the U.K., Basically, I've never been able to figure out if these boycotts happen mainly because of racial justice advocates showing international solidarity, or if they were mainly because of elites trying to make their own countries look racist, look less racist. So to answer that question, yes, I know <laughs> it is. It is very much a multiracial movement from the start. Um, primarily actually to do with the communists that are operating in Southern Africa that are helping fight colonialism. Um, and so there are a lot of people who are coming from Europe or who are technically like descendants of colonizers themselves living within Africa. You see this a lot in the Portuguese case in Angola, for example. But a lot of the left-leaning leaders themselves may be white, but they're the ones who are getting information out about the colony beyond the colony because there are all these bans on um, press freedoms and movement sometimes as well. So they're using their their left-leaning socialist networks to publicize information about what's actually happening within Angola, within Mozambique, within South Africa, et cetera. Um, so what you see in the specific case of South Africa and the UK movement is in the UK, this, this anti-apartheid movement is actually started by South African expats. So people who are immigrants from South, who moved from South Africa to England in exile or who settle there even in some cases. They also come from other parts of Southern Africa and stay in the UK. And they're interacting, like I said, this is again where communists um, become really important. They're interacting with people like Claudia Jones. So for those of you who don't, who may not know who she is, she's a Caribbean born black communist who lived in the United States, but who was deported um, and then lived in the UK. And she continued to do a lot of her anti-racist and left-leaning um, organizing and, and advocacy there. 
So within a lot of these groups, um, that's where you start to, where you see the start of the anti-apartheid movement in the UK. At the same time, obviously, there's always some business going on at the larger kind of state level where they're using these struggles abroad to sort of frame themselves as the better country or the more equitable space. Um, so again, much like what I just mentioned with regard to Brazil framing itself as a racial democracy, uh, the UK is also kind of using um, pre-existing Dutch racism against uh, native South Africans to make themselves look like the more, um, you know, the, the less racist of the two of them when they also were engaged in plenty of um, projects in South Africa that helped further along segregation and apartheid. Um, and the other thing really quickly just about that is that the fact that all of these movements, as I said, that are happening abroad are being, mm, I guess you would say they were, they're being furthered by actions that are happening on the ground in South Africa. So you have things like the Soweto uprisings in 1976. You have um, other movements against colonialism that had been happening in the 1940s and the 1950s. You see in the 1960s, for example, um, the Sharpeville massacre where hundreds of people, sorry, almost 100 people are killed. Um, so connections with people like Steve Biko, who actually there's a, there's a, a black a black center in the northern part of Brazil named after Steve Biko. So there are all these connections that are happening that are made between people of color in South Africa and particularly black people from South Africa and people abroad. Some of them are white, some of them are not. But I think it's important to recognize that the origins are not necessarily built around um, white elites who are trying to make their countries look better. I wouldn't class, I wouldn't characterize it in that way at all. Okay, now we're at one hour and 15 minutes and this is usually where I try to um, end the show and being that you answered his second question, I would normally mm -hmm. say, oh, you know, hey, I'm done. Do the co-hosts have any final questions they want to get in? But at the start, before we started recording, we found out in added bonus of having you on, which is it relates to a type of show that we wanted to do. And it looks like we might have a chance to touch on it. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that the co-host and I have been discussing is we want to have a woman of color on who doesn't agree with us on a lot of things and to, you know, talk about different things because we don't just want to have a giant um, thing where we're just always talking to people who agree with us or that we're not talking to people on the opposing side. So before we started, Wendy said, I don't always agree with what you guys um, said. I mean, say. So I was like, oh, wow, this is a nice little bonus. Uh, so in the final um, 15 or 20 minutes, if you have the time, um, would you like to discuss uh, different things you disagree with the show's worldview on? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned when I first started talking to you guys, I wasn't necessarily planning on this. I kind of mentioned it in passing. If I knew that I would be talking about this, I would have a full list of uh, points to cover. <laughs> oh, wow. but, you know, I do. One of the things that I think right off the jump that I have to make clear is like, for example, I'm a leftist and I'm a black woman. And I think that there's oftentimes this kind of um, license that you all and some other people, they're not just not just black men, but a lot of men, period. I think there's license that's given to black or to white women to be radical. So you all had on Jessica Crispin, for example, who I think is great. And I've read her book and agree with a lot of what she says. Um, but I think also some of the things she said on on air. I don't know if you all would have the same reaction if a black woman said it, or even if you would necessarily highlight a black woman saying it. So I think what ends up happening, unfortunately, due to the political process in the United States, is that a lot of 
the political ideology of black women gets sort of um, pushed under the Democrat umbrella, right? And sort of this establishment narrative. And I think that sometimes uh, black women's radicalism is often dismissed until it's said by a white woman. Um, so that is a bit of a problem that I noticed. And I kind of, when you all had her on, I was like, I can't imagine them having on a black woman to say these very same things. Um, so I don't know, that's, that's sort of an aside, but it's definitely something that I thought about. I also think that when you all had on, and of course I'm going to forget, I've forgotten his name right now, but you had on a, the guy who wrote the man, not Tommy, something. Yeah, uh, Tommy, Tommy Curry. Yeah. Yeah. Tommy Curry, who's, you know, work, I think at least insofar as making an intervention and sort of thinking about gender beyond just being a female thing, but also understanding the way men are shaped by our narratives and understandings of gender. I think that work is really important. Um, but I think sometimes his readings of statistics and the way he frames his reading of statistics can be, um, I don't know, problematic is, is the word that I'm reluctant to use because I don't think it really tells us that much. Uh, but it is, it is, I think, in a way that characterizes Black women in um, a manner that we're really conditioned to and that is convenient to fall back on, but is not necessarily accurate. And I don't think necessarily captures a lot of the ways that Black women continue to be marginalized, not only in the U.S., but beyond um, thinking of it more globally, right? So again, if I had more specifics, I'd be happy to send you a list. Um, but... Yeah, yeah. I think I think one of the unfair things about us putting you in a spot like this is because I get where you're coming from, because even to do the show, I like to make notes and have things ready because I don't trust myself to just... Uh, contemporaneously come up with the concrete examples um, on the spot. So I do understand, but if you wanted to make a detailed list and come, come back <laughs> on, we would totally be um, open to it. I don't know. I don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> <You're done. laughs> you have real-time silencing. No, I, don't, I don't feel that bad. What's that? I don't feel that bad because I, I wasn't involved with the uh, Jessica Crispin episode or the Dr. Curry. I, 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 you know, I, I, like, I like Dr. Curry, though. I like Dr. Curry. So her, her, her critique is really with Dr. Curry as opposed to us. Well, or you? Well, well, I'll take I'll take I'll take ownership I'll take ownership of it because um it is pushed back. I want to stop there. I don't I don't want I don't want to hear what she has. Uh yeah. Well, that also is a problem. I'm just joking. I'm just no, but I think you know I was that was a joke. I know. I know. I know. I'm not trying to stop a critique of of. Yeah, I mean, I think too that for me personally, like what I've always found most important is seeing black male and female women and men struggles as part of a sort of continuum right and it's not necessarily a degree or competition between the two of us but having an understanding of the way we deal with and, and you know confront the world is it's like a shared fight but it's different right the way we experience the world is always going to be different um and i think it's important to recognize those differences without necessarily making it a competition between the two or, and I, you know, I know that there are black women who are guilty of this too, and I don't agree with them either, right? Um, I don't think that any sort of uh, liberation for black people is going to be won by competing between ourselves, but it's going to be won by unifying and having an understanding of what our shared community goals are and the ways to make sure that we each are held accountable if we are engaging in practices like what we had mentioned earlier with black men who go to Brazil for wives and whole sort of economic issues with that um you know we have to yeah. think about the ways that we are continuing to hurt people within our own communities and by alienating one another and to avoid that yeah one thing yeah i see i actually agree with that and 
something that we try to mention a lot, like for example, we had a two part uh, Patreon episode um, last week. And something that I kept trying to interject throughout to make it clear is when we try to bring up this counter narrative, it's not because we try to say in, throughout, this is not about trying to compete and say, oh, we have it worse. It's an oppression Olympics. It's more to kind of say that nobody has a monopoly on black suffering and we all suffer more because we're black than because of our gender. Right. And one of the um, illustrations that I didn't even come up with this, uh, a black woman uh, came up with this, but I saw her ask it and it really kind of hit me, hit me at home. A black woman asked another black woman on a bunch of other black women on Twitter. She was like, okay, if it's really about, um, being a black woman over everything else, then why would you rather be to um, escape uh, oppression? Would you rather be a black man or a white woman? And nobody would ever answer her. Because even just trying to claim that they would rather be a black man than a white woman would, uh, then it would just sound ridiculous on its face. And that's kind of what we're trying to say. We're just, we're, mm-hmm. like, we actually agree with you on that, that it's not about an oppression Olympics. It's just, I think one of the reasons why we end up kind of sounding like this is because it's so normalized to, um, because I see a lot of white liberals feel very comfortable doing it too, because of who they kind of anoint as spokespeople for black people. They feel very comfortable lecturing me, a black man, about all my black male privilege. And I'm like, you're fucking white. Who are you? Like, how dare you come to come to me and then lecture me on behalf of black women about how much better I have it than them and how I'm <laughs> kind of lording my privilege over them. And it's like, you're fucking white. Like you should be listening to both of us, you know? And what I try to do is I try to not, um, cause Pete, cause this is a, a mm-hmm. phrasing mm-hmm. I used uh, last episode is that people act like, uh, oppression is like this finite, um, resource. And it's like this kind of oxygen in the room. And if, one black gender is uh, able to use up more of it. They're using up all the oppression oxygen and keeping the other side from getting it. And it's like oppression is limitless. Like people can think of unlimited ways to oppress you. There's more than enough shitting on people to go around. And if there's one thing we don't need to compete on, it's, uh, it's that. So I totally agree with you, but I'll also say this. Um, I, would be totally fine. Not only would I be fine with a lot of black women being especially radical and talking to them and giving them license to say what Jessica Crispin did. Um, if you want to come on and go above and beyond what Jessica, Jessica Crispin did, you are totally free to. And on top of that, if you have some black women to recommend to us who will be like, bomb throwers please send them because our, one of our problems is we have, kind of have trouble finding black women like that and i know it's not because they don't exist i'm sure they do it's because the ones who get the mic the most yeah. the ones who get the platform the most are kind of like um the zerlina maxwell's trust black women types you know the kind who are just kind of shills for the democratic um party and i like to look for more radical uh-huh. black women but it's like i feel like it's a circular thing like they don't get a lot of platforming and a lot of 
of the mic a lot of times, either in academia or um, or in the punditry. And then because of that, because you did that visible, it's harder to find them and give them a platform. And I would definitely, so whether it's you or you have people okay. to recommend, um, you know, yeah, please, please do. Absolutely. I think, and also, um, I think a lot of times on the show, we end up reacting to excesses that we see happening uh, <laughs> online and things like that. So sometimes it may seem like we're too far slanted one way. But in reality, uh, there's a saying that that someone I like to listen to, Neely Fuller Jr., he always says, always learning. Right. When they when someone asks him, how's he doing? He says, I'm still learning or I'm always learning. And that's that's something for me personally. I'm I'm new to this entire world of left wing activism and understanding how racial dynamic works in, in America and abroad and dealing with these things. So I'm still for myself personally, I'm still processing a lot of this stuff. And, you know, so I come to it from a certain perspective, but I, I always love to hear people that that have a point of view that can add to what the, the information that I'm trying to learn, you know, because I like T said at the beginning of the show, you know, I don't want to come on here and act like a know it all. I'm the least academic person <laughs> in the world. But, <laughs> you know, I do like when we have people such as yourself come on to the show because I love to hear your perspective and and, and listen to the time that you've listen to what you've come up with from the time that you've spent studying these issues. And so anyone who has that and in so I do have so long as they are, you know, in this headed in the same direction that we are, which means I don't have any interest in talking to, say, um, some alt right guy or something like I don't have any interest <laughs> in talking. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. I don't have any interest in talking to those kinds of people. But um, definitely, you know, and, and one of the things that we will always try to do is remain open to criticism. Um, one of the reasons why us three get along so well is we're very self, we're very introspective guys and we don't think that we know it all. And so, you know, we would definitely, absolutely love to have you or anyone else that, you know, come on and, and have these kinds of discussions. Well, I definitely know some radical black women, historians <laughs> and other academics who I've had on my show, but who I could also definitely, I'm sure, be a great contribution to your show as well to talk about not only black radicalism in the present that's, you know, engaged in by black women, but also in our past and how that can kind of shape where we're going. So um, I'll send you guys a list. <laughs> along, along with the list of things that you disagree yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. well, 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 don't, don't send don't send the list. I would like to have you uh, call this out on air. So, you know, you don't have to send the list for just just if you want to schedule a time to come back. You can even bring another <laughs> black woman and. You know, we can have a whole struggle. Like you have tap, a whole struggle. Tap her into the ring. <laughs> oh my god! A struggle session. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole struggle yeah. session. Like, like I'm, 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 I'm open to it because I kind of want to have that dialectic because um, I, I feel like black discourse doesn't have that anymore. Where people can disagree, where people can disagree, but they can work it out in real time. And they in in the '60s and earlier, they used to be. Um, these journals where people would have like back and forth and work things out and still get along at the end of uh, the day. Like I was actually surprised to find out that um, Adolf Reed and Michael Eric Dyson were like on a panel together um, 
just uh, last year. And, you know, he, you know, Adolf Reed is famously um, torn uh, Michael Larry Dyson on a new one. Apart. <laughs> yeah. I said he tore him a new one on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that used to happen like, like a lot. Um, there was um, this article by, uh, what's his name? Um, Robin D.G. Oh, yeah. Kelly. And it's called, it's called Black Like Mao. And he just talks about all these kind of spirited debates like uh, black people would have in the public discourse. And it was with the idea that we're going to have this kind of dialectical where we're going to argue it out in public and then hopefully synthesize new thoughts out of it. And now, like, black discourse isn't like that. Now it's just a bunch of um, people that white liberals love who get the mic. It's, it's what Adolf Reed predicted in What Are the Drums Saying, Booker? We're just a giant circle jerk where they only talk to other black people who agree with them and then recommend it. Like, no, if you like what I did, then you should also read this other person who thinks just like me. That's the other black person you should listen to. And also um, hire them to uh, work on a DC comic. And it's just this <laughs> weird careerism and uh, back padding and echo chamber. and. Yeah, I mean, we don't we don't want that. So, yeah. And you just have to be uh, careful not to let what liberals are doing, or I should say like the neoliberal center that dominates uh, discourse on race in the United States. You have to be careful not to let what they're doing kind of taint the whole group of us. Like we're not all, I think what ends up happening is that oftentimes people take the dominant structure and like think that that reflects for all of us. And in actuality, like there are a lot of black people who disagree and black women in particular who disagree with what people like whom you've already mentioned have been doing. So I think it's just important to always recognize that just because they're making themselves the spokespeople doesn't mean we're um, consenting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in that case, you're not the us. Because yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. of black women as a monolith, you know? So so there, there, there is no us there. It would, be, it would be the same way as if I don't view, <laughs> like, these kind of Twitter hoteps as an us that right. I've included with uh, either, you know? There, there, there are certain... Uh, strain of uh, both, you know, class-wise and belief-wise, there's mm-hmm. certain... I don't even think they represent all intersectional women. Like, you know, I, they go against a lot of what uh, Kimberly Crenshaw says herself. You know, like she said that identity is not meant to be just this additive thing. Like, she explicitly said that, and I saw somebody put that on Twitter, like, you know, just a reminder, Kimberly Crenshaw said that mm-hmm. intersectionality is not just about counting identities and then using them to get the mic and then a bunch of some of the more popular twitter intersectional names started replying to say that she didn't know what she was talking about i'm like wait how are you even going to say that you're actually going to disagree with the quote by uh kimberly crenshaw as one of the formulators of uh accepted academic intersectional <laughs> theory so yeah i mean we don't believe that black women That's are, a i wish i saved that thread too because it would be it would be great to put in the show notes. I wish I could find it again. But yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah. So so totally send send the list of the people. All right. <laughs> but for the actual complaints, save that for when we have you on um again. Especially if you can remember things that you feel that we gave Jessica Crispin license to say that you don't think um we would give a black woman license to say. I'm curious to see that list. Um, I doubt you can remember it offhand now. If you can, that would yeah, be I mean, great. Yeah, I mean, I would just ask for a paycheck for all the time. I'm going to have to go back and listen to the episode. 
Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're asking for emotional yeah. labor. Um, hey, black women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. First we need a racer, then now we're asking for unpaid emotional labor. We're, we're batting a thousand. We're making oh our reputation goodness. worse. If you're using her as a mule, here we go. <laughs> yeah. No, and once I, again, D uh, has not participated in, sorry, in, Mike has not participated in any of it, so I'm bearing the full uh, <laughs> brunt of the bad behavior. Well, you know, I gotta go back and listen to that. I gotta go back and listen to that show now because you know I didn't, I didn't realize. And it just so happens that those, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm part of the whole process though, so I gotta I take my lumps with everybody else. So I can't get out of it. And you know, I want to say one. I want to say one final thing, and this is something that I legitimately don't know the answer to. Right? Um, this is a show that I had in mind that I created with. I would like a show that kind of explains, um, kind of like. I feel like most race writing has like two functions. It is there to explain to white people how black people view them and explain, explain to white people how black people view themselves. And I thought it'd be interesting to have a show where it's about race, but it's more about explaining to non-white people how white people view them and explaining to non-white people how white people view themselves. And like, an example would be that whole thing about how we're meant to be like consumed centrally in stuff. Like that's a perfect example of the kind of insight. But what's interesting is the show's attracted a lot of um, white people, right? And one of the things that's interesting to me about the whole like there's this theory that um, it's called the observer effect, and the observer effect is uh, the idea that the observer by changing something by observing something affects the results that's being observed. So it's like um, by um, putting something on the scale, the observer, the weight of the observer's thumb is affecting the uh, scale. Like there's different examples of the observer effect, but basically the observer affects the, um, the results of the study. And I feel like the white gaze is like that. Whereas if you have, white people listening or watching something just by nature of them being there, it automatically becomes interpreted through the white gaze, whether it's affected that way, whether it's intended that way or not. So then it becomes this funny thing. Um, it's one thing if you intend a conversation about black men and black women to be for a black audience, for black people to kind of work things out, but once the white audience is there, the very nature of it, you know, is changed. Like, am I now talking about black women and throwing them under the bus for the entertainment of uh, white people to say the things that they feel they can't say about maybe uh, black women they don't like? And it kind of makes, yeah, yeah it makes a funny thing. <laughs> ben what's the choice? Is the choice to just not um, talk about that for that reason? But in that case, then you, then I become exactly what, I didn't want to create it for. Uh-huh. I'm just is, laughing because you know, I always have this conversation and just had it last week on my podcast. So yes, it is it is a real thing, and I think that it's important for us to recognize when we're engaging in it and try to not do that. Yeah, yeah, but but then if you try to not do it, then you're kind of letting that observer effect uh-huh. happen. You're letting the the presence of the white gaze actually change the results of the uh, uh-huh. experiment. Which I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah, I, I, I'm with 
I don't know either. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I don't know what I was. I, well, I guess I was just going to say that, you know, as far as like, you know, who's observing, I feel like if we're just, I mean, I don't, I don't really think about who's observing so much. You know, I'm just talking to, you know, two brothers, you know, and a sister now. And I don't think, I feel like if we're talking to each other, honestly, you know, however people observe it outside of that, I, I don't really care. You know, that man, that that's exactly how I feel about it. every, every week that we do this show. I feel like I'm just, we're just three guys trying to learn and understand the world that we live in, you know, and whoever happens to listen. Now I do, I, I, I do want it to be directed toward more black people yeah. in general. But I mean, sometimes you can't always get what you want, man. And, and you just have to kind of put it out there and hope that you're having the effect that you want. And I won't lie. It's kind of been a pleasant surprise because we kind of don't really pull punches on, you know, what we say about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's kind of given me a little bit of a renewed faith that people can uh, be OK with that because I was a little bit surprised myself. I wanted to ask Wendy so many questions that we didn't get a chance to go into. She kind of touched on some things, but if if you come back, I would really love to pick your brain just on like color cast systems in particular, how they affect black women internationally or in Brazil and things like that. Did I say that right? Color cast or case or whatever. Yeah, that's it. Cast. cast. Right. I want to know because, you know, we talked about colorism a little bit and things like that and, and how in some ways it's tied in with like sexuality, class, et cetera. I, I'm interested in how that really affects women over there. And we didn't get a chance to really touch on it too much, you know, in a, on, in a microscope. So next time we have you on, I would love to pick your brain about some of that. OK, great. No and one last thing, you don't have to do all that emotional labor. You know? So, <laughs> yeah, don't. Yeah. Don't be don't be scared off by that. Just. Um, but she also has a podcast, too. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, that we can check out some of her, some of the episodes of her uh, podcast. That's a great thing to go out on because we've already went like way over what we planned. So actually, um, Wendy, if you just want to end by telling the people where to find you, um, any links you want to share, anything you're working on that you want the people to know, and sure. we'll end it there. Um, so like I said, they can always find me on my personal account at Muse Wendy, Wendy with an I, not a Y. Um, but the project that I have is called the Left Pocket Project, and that's at Left POC on Twitter and pretty much any other social media. It's a podcast and sort of a, an educational project as a whole on leftists of color who were involved in left-leaning movements or who led them or both. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I do. You can find me at Left POC as well and learn more about people of color who were leading the charge for equality since the beginning of time. <laughs> all right. Great. So, all right. Thanks everyone for uh, coming in today and having this talk. I think it uh, was pretty good and we will definitely do it again soon.